Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. Today is April 18th, 2019, and we are going to be talking about uh, the newly approved drug, ertafitinib. And this is the first new chemical entity approved uh, for cancer by the FDA in calendar year 2019. And this approval came last week on April uh, 12th. Um, and so here's the approval. Uh, it was an accelerated approval for patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial, so think bladder, cancer, uh, with, quote, susceptible FGFR3 or FGFR2 genetic alterations, uh, end of quote, that progressed during or following platinum-based chemo, uh, even neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemo if that progression happened within 12 months. So basically, platinum refractory or platinum-resistant patients. <clears throat> so a couple questions right away. What is FGFR? Well, it stands for fiber fibroblast growth factor receptor, and FGFs, so fibroblast growth factors, are ligands that bind to fibroblast growth factor receptor and some other pathways and have a role in metabolism, homeostasis, endocrine function, wound repair, bone development. Uh, For example, FGF23 specifically uh, is a regulator of uh, phosphate phosphate, uh, homeostasis. Um, This is the first FGFR inhibitor, if I'm correct, that's been FDA approved. Uh, and it's an accelerated approval, which means it's based on response rate. Small study of only 87 folks will get into. Don't know when it's going to be available yet. <clears throat> there is a test that uh, was a, a companion test approved with this to find these FGFR2 or FGFR3 mutations that should be used with that. Uh, so whether or not it's going to be available at your institution and when is a question that you should raise. And the cost looks like it's going to be an average of about $18,000 for a 28-day supply. Moving right along to the dose. The starting dose is 8 milligrams daily with or without food, so no no uh, food uh, interaction, so to speak, with regards to absorption of the drug. Um, and then the dose can be increased to 9 milligrams if tolerated based on their phosphate level. So this is a f- one of the first things that really grabs your eye about this drug is FGFR inhibition causes an increase in phosphate. Remember, FGF23 has a role in phosphate homeostasis. So if the drug is blocking that pathway that weight's supposed to, serum phosphate levels should increase. If they don't, and patients are not having terrible toxicity or they can tolerate the drug, then the drug is increased from 8 to 9 milligrams a day. Now, you might be thinking, well, when do we do that increase? How do we do that? Uh, Logistically, as far as the tablet dosage shrinks, so it's going to come in 3, 4, and 5 milligram tablets. The PI says the first dose, 8 milligram starting dose, should be two four milligram tablets. Seems to me you can get to eight with a five and a three as well. And then if patients do end up having a dose increase to nine milligrams, they can use the three milligram tablets they have and do three of those. But those are things that will be worked out in practice as we as we get into that. Um, so, um, you know, they have to tolerate the drug. And then if their phosphate levels are not above 5.5, you can increase the dose. So uh, in case you're not familiar, a normal serum phosphate level is 2.5 to 4.5. So 5.5 is a small elevation, uh, and if you don't reach that 5.5 of serum phosphate, the dose should be increased uh, based on that phosphate being drawn two to three weeks after starting the drug. Uh, So this is a pharmacodynamic initiated dose increase based on whether or not uh, you're seeing that drug that on-target drug activity of hyperphosphatemia. So pretty unique in that standpoint. Uh, so this is, uh, as they would call it, a PAN-FGFR inhibitor we, as we transition now into mechanism of action. 
There are four uh, fibroblast growth factor receptors, and they are logically named FGFR1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, so there are several FGFR inhibitors um, in development, and this is uh, the most potent that you can, if you look in review articles, the most potent that you'll find. It has IC50 uh, values that are less than 1 nanomolar for FGFR1, FGFR2, FGFR4, and then 1.05 or 1.9 uh, nanomolar for uh, FGFR3. Uh, by comparison, uh, ponatinib, um, the, the, the CML TKI that's only used for T315I disease really, uh, does inhibit FGFR1, but uh, but only FGFR1, and it has a, an IC50 of, of above 2 nanomolar. So this is fairly potent uh, as an inhibitor. It also, as the PI says, quote, binds to RET, platelet-to-grab growth factors alpha and beta, KIT, and VEGFR2. So there could be some off-target toxicity, but a fairly potent and specific FGF inhibitor, FGFR inhibitor, it looks like. Moving on to the drug characteristics, ADME. Again, absorption is not affected by food. That's great. 99.8% protein bound. Uh, half-life on average is 59 hours, so pretty long half-life, uh, which, which does allow for once-a-day dosing. It's metabolized by CYP2C9 and 3-4 through the liver. Uh, fecal elimination accounts for 69% of the drug with only 19% of that being unchanged drug with uh, urinary excretion being the other, uh, or uh, an additional 19%, 13% of that unchanged drug. So it is metabolized by CYP2C9 and 3-4, so there are drug interactions to worry about. So fluconazole, which is a strong 2C9 inhibitor, increases the AUC 140%, so not a huge increase. Um, but itraconazole, a drug that blocks CYP3A4, as well as peak a protein, increases AUC by 34%, so it's not doubling the area of the curve or increasing it by a whole lot for these strong inhibitors. Um, so should not have terrible drug interactions unless you were giving someone uh, this drug and they had drugs that inhibited 2C9 and 3A4 potentially. <clears throat> uh, we don't have a study with the 3A4 inducer, so, but the PI says rifampin may decrease concentrations and decrease efficacy. Um, and this is, this is just makes me hit my head against the wall. <clears throat> Quote, erdofitinib is a time-dependent inhibitor and inducer of CYP3A4. And so there might be side effects or drug, sorry, drug interactions with 3A4 substrates. And if you don't know, if you just pick a random drug that's metabolized hepatically, it's like a 50-50 chance that it's going to be metabolized by 3A4. So there could be a lot of drug interactions with erdofitinib, and we don't know. Not only do we not know if there are drug interactions, we don't know if the drug interactions that would be there are due to induction or inhibition. Um, so you might be wondering, how can a drug be an inhibitor and an inducer? And <clears throat> there are some examples of this. The best one is a prepotent, which in the short term is an inhibitor of CYP3A4, for example, and can lead to some drug interactions potentially with certain chemotherapy agents. But if it's taken daily for continuous use, for say for two weeks or more, it becomes an inducer. Maybe that's the same with erdofitinib, but we'd have to see that data. I can't find it anywhere as I, as I search for that in PubMed. Uh, I would have to assume um, those studies are ongoing and I hope would be required for full and regular approval. I'm surprised that it was approved without you know, a typical midazolam study to see if what it does to, to CYP3A4. Um, so that, that's a little, uh, a little surprising. Um, this is the first time uh, of a recently approved drug that there's a specific pharmacogenomic statement in the package insert. Genomics are going to be the future. Um, because of its metabolism via 2C9, um, it, we do have apparently some data on file with a company that if you were wild type versus heterozygous for a deficiency of 2C9. So when I say star 1, that's the wild type CYP2C9. 
Uh, so if you're wild type versus star one or star two, so you have one, uh, you know, uh, not, I don't want to say a bad copy, but a, a, an intermediate, maybe metabolizer, uh, or so star one, star two, or star one, star three, a different polymorphism. Uh, quote, exposures are similar, but no data with folks who have, uh, that are homozygous for say two deficient or defective copies of 2C9. Uh, and that can be up to 3% of the population, and, and this came up on rounds yesterday, but like one-third of, of folks of uh, European descent have at least one polymorphism in, in CYP2C9. Uh, so we'll see more and more of that pharmacogenomic data in the PIs uh, in years to come, I think. So that's a little bit about kind of the basics of the drug. going to go through the, quote, efficacy, and then we'll get into some of the toxicity, because there's a bit to talk about with the toxicity, as you might imagine. So as I mentioned, this was approved based off of a small study of 87 patients called BLC-2001. Uh, this is unpublished data. We know this from the package insert. Uh, something was presented at ASCO last year as an abstract, I believe. So these were patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial or bladder cancer, uh, status post or after one or more cycles of chemo with uh, the FGFR mutations or a fusion uh, genes, and there were eight possible. There were four genetic alterations in FGFR2 and four alterations in FGFR3 that, uh, that were studied. And the median age was 67, consistent with kind of the bladder cancer population, but a range, there was a patient as young as 36 up to page, or age 87. Um, most of these guys were male, 79% male, 74% Caucasian, 66 or two-thirds had visceral mets, so disease had spread to say the lungs, liver, uh, 97% had received platinum chemo, with most of that being cisplatin, and 24% had received immunotherapy, uh, which probably would be the standard second line for these folks, which means three-quarters of them uh, went to uh, this uh, TKI uh, before immunotherapy, which I, which I think is interesting. So the approval is based off of an overall response rate of just under one-third of the patient population, 32%. Most of all of those being partial responses, 2.3% of the patients on the study had a complete response, and the median duration of response was 5.4 months, which uh, comparatively is relatively short for a tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, with a gene, uh, you know, with a, a genetic mutation that's specifically targeted. Um, now, the duration of treatment was about five months on median with a range up to 17 months, so there's at least one patient that was able to stay on the drug for almost a year and a half um, suggesting some patients may do fairly well, but overall very, very modest activity with a response rate of less than, overall response rate of less than, than one-third. And again, most of those being partial responses. That's not surprising necessarily for a TKI. So some modest efficacy here. Um, and again, as a phase two study that's approved on response rate, there will be a confirmatory phase three study, which potentially could lead to the drug staying on the market, or in the case of alaritumumab, potentially being removed. On to toxicity, warning precautions, etc. Um, so, uh, you know, IFOS is what I think of when I think of this drug. So, if you're going to remember just two things about Erdofit, remember IFOS. I is in eyes, and FOS as in serum phosphate. So, ocular toxicity gets kind of the headlining here as far as side effects. So, central serous retinopathy or retinal pigment epithelial detachment occurred in 25% of patients. So, anytime, you know, one in four. Uh, patients getting the drug have retinal detachment in the list, it, it raises some eyebrows. Now, 3% of those were grade 3 toxicity, which required, uh, which would have meant they had central field deficits. And it was basically 50-50 whether or not patients had resolution of symptoms 
or still had those visual deficits by the time the study ended. The median onset to these visual disturbances was 50 days, uh, so within, within two months. Uh, additionally, dry eyes happened in 28% of patients, 6% of that being grade 3. So what's a, a grade 3 or uh, dry eyes? Well, dry eyes that interfere with activities of daily living. Uh, so because of this, patients need to see an ophthalmologist, uh, have an ophthalm ophthalmologic, they got to see an ophthalmologist, not an ophthalmologist, but an ophthalmologist, an MD eye doctor, uh, monthly for the first four months and then every three months thereafter. And the first four months makes sense if the median time to onset this serious toxicity is 50 days. Um, so they got to see the ophthalmologist regularly <clears throat> and, quote, urgently at any time of symptoms. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, you know, we live in, in Johnson City, uh, you know, population 50, 60,000. It's not in the boonies, but it's not exactly a metropolis. So there aren't a ton of ophthalmologists in town. And when my wife was pregnant with her first child, uh, she had some visual disturbances uh, where she saw some starry eyes sort of things kind of when she was uh, eight months along. This was the day after Thanksgiving. So we do, uh, you know, what we think we should do, which is go to urgent care, get it checked out, make sure there's no eclampsia, preeclampsia. Blood pressure is good. They kept checking the blood pressure. Blood pressure is good. Uh, by the way, this urgent care, it was not urgent care. It took forever to be seen for a pregnant person with potentially eclampsia. Um, <clears throat> that's a different story. Anyway, at the end of being there for several hours, uh, the provider says, well, you know, I think you need to see an ophthalmologist uh, today after a holiday. The only way to do that is to go into the hospital and to, uh, you know, have them page to come in. So we go to the emergency room and basically then get dismissed without uh, being seen by an ophthalmologist. Everything was fine. In retrospect, it was probably uh, an ocular migraine, uh, which can happen, and the symptoms fit with that. The point of that story that doesn't seem to be relevant to this is that it can sometimes be hard to see an ophthalmologist, especially if it requires urgently being seen. <clears throat> so, you know, if this is a drug you're going to be using uh, frequently in your clinics, you're going to want to get to know your ophthalmologist. It does require a slit lamp evaluation for this stuff, so it does need to be an ophthalmologist and not, a, not an optometrist by my understanding. And that's uh, clearly what it says in the PI is an ophthalmologist. Uh, so it does require that, that regular follow-up, which could be a burden, especially for patients in rural areas, because ophthalmologists are not exactly uh, in towns of two and 3,000. Uh, so that's the eye. Then the FOS. So I already mentioned the pharmacodynamic monitoring and dose adjustment based on serum phosphate. Uh, so hyperphosphatemia happened in 76% of patients, which means 24% you know, maybe didn't even have a chance of the drug working if, it, if that is a marker of, of what we expect the drug to do. Uh, the median onset to hyperphosphatemia was 20 days. The PI says to check serum phosphate 14 to 21 days. Um, so if the median onset to hyperphosphatemia is 20 days, maybe three weeks is the best time uh, to do that instead of two weeks in case you miss that. And the range being of, of hyperphosphatemia from 8 to 116 days. So a very wide range there. Um, <clears throat> The study uh, <clears throat> prohibited, <clears throat> pardon me, prohibited drugs that could increase serum phosphate on its own. So that would include vitamin D, obviously phosphate supplements, and acids, things like that. Uh, Phosphate-containing enemas; those things were excluded and probably should not be taken. So they don't muddy the water when you're assessing that serum phosphate to look for the the activity of ertafitinib. I will also mention that 32% of patients on the study received phosphate uh, binders to decrease the serum phosphate. Uh, when do you add a phosphate binder? Well, when the according to the package insert, where the serum phosphate is above seven. Now, you know if the person at that time has a, a 
serum calcium that's in the middle of the normal range around nine, that's a calcium phosph product of 63. And a calcium phosph product above 50 to 60 is where you can start to see crystallization of calcium phosphate in the kidneys and, and potentially acute kidney injury. Uh, so that's kind of the very latest point at which you would consider adding a phosphate binder. In some patients, uh, you know, it might be prudent to even consider adding a phosphate binder earlier purely from, uh, you know, a kidney protection standpoint, but then is that going to uh, maybe prevent patients from being on uh, the higher dose of ertafitinib, uh, which presumably may have more activity. We don't know, so there's a lot still to learn about how this is going to play uh, in the real world with regards to this hyperphosphatemia. Okay, it does also have embryofetal, uh, embryofetal toxicity warning, uh, so men, women uh, trying to be pregnant uh, should... Uh, if they're going to take the drug, of course, have to use the appropriate precautions. Uh, some other notable toxicities I'll run through. Um, so stomatitis was really the most common, 56% of patients, only 9% being grade 3 or 4 stomatitis. Diarrhea, 47%, only 2% being uh, severe, so mostly mild. Dry mouth, 45%. Nausea vomiting, 21 and 13% respectively. Fatigue, 54%. And 10% of patients had uh, grade 3 or 4 fatigue, which would have interfered with activities of daily living. Uh, a lot of nail disorders, uh, 41% and 10% of those being severe. Uh, hand foot syndrome in 26%, alopecia in 26%, and dyscasia or food and taste alterations in 37%. Uh, you know, overall doses had to be held in like two thirds of patients, um, and that was due to hyperphosphatemia, stomatitis, uh, eye disorders, and hand foot syndrome. And a little, a little over half the patients eventually had to have a dose decreased. And there's a nice table that has the dose decreases going on, but it's something to keep in mind uh, with what is the next dose level that's going to be decreased. For example, you would go from 8 to 6. And again, the way the PI says it is the starting dose is 2 4 milligram tablets, and the first dose reduction is 2 3 milligram tablets. So uh, it seems to me that you can do most of the, um, you know, there's going to be a, a lot of tablets involved for patients if they have a lot of dose increases or dose uh, reductions as we go through. Um, I didn't mention this, but there's no appreciable QT prolongation with this drug. Uh, dissolution was fine from a, a wide range of pH, or consistent amongst a whole uh, range of, of pHs, so no concern with uh, PPIs, for example. So, in summary, you know, big picture, if you remember two things from this, I guess three things. One, it's the first FGFR inhibitor. Two, I toxicities. And then three, FOS monitoring and dose adjustment based on serum phosphate levels. Um, Again, uh, it's going to be, I think, a little bit labor-intensive with all the FOSS monitoring, uh, dose increases, dose reductions, having to get a new dosage form to, to take the new dose potentially, and mixing and matching those 3, 4, and 5 milligram tablets. We still don't know what the drug-drug drug interaction profile of the drug is, whether or not it's mostly a 3, 4 inhibitor, inducer, how potent of an inducer or inhibitor that may be. We really don't know. Um, when's it going to be available for patients? We don't know. And when, you know, would you, you know, your pathology folks have access to the companion test to get that done? Uh, those are things you're waiting for. And maybe the big question is, does this, you know, actually um, impact patient care? This is based on overall response rate. We don't know if this has any, you know, uh, effect on overall survival or even progression-free survival. So there is going to be a confirmatory phase three study. Uh, there's a phase three study that'll be done uh, comparing ertafitinib versus chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, which will be very interesting to see uh, how that does. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, uh, my employer and sponsor of this 
uh, of this podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Follow us on Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Uh, you can find us on iTunes where we would love for you to give us a five-star rating and give us a nice review as well as Stitcher and in the Google Play Store or Google Music Store. Thank you again for listening and uh, talk to you next week. And remember, doses matter. Sometimes so does the phosphate levels with that dosing. is called a coda is that right is it called a coda when you come back after to say something well uh i forgot to tell you guys something that i meant to so those of you hang on for the very very last seconds of oncofarm are going to get a little bit more and that is that these fgfr mutations are present in uh 15 of invasive urothelial cancers they're also found in about 10 percent of endometrial cancers four percent of non-small cell lung cancers and gastric cancers those are fgfr um, mutations, specific FGFR3 mutations to, to bladder, the FGFR, FGFR2 mutations in endometrial, and uh, 4% non-small cell lung cancer, and FGFR3 fusions, which are, uh, are one of the things that was included in this approval uh, in glioblastoma and bladder cancer, uh, and rarely, rarely reported lung cancer. The reason I say that is to give you an idea of how many patients with you know metastatic urothelial cancer might be candidates for this, so 15%. Potentially, uh, and then also with molecular tumor boards and pharmacogenomics of uh, and genomic profiling of tumors. Now that there is an FDA-approved FDA FDFR inhibitor, it could be used off-label if uh, patients can get it paid for uh, for patients with uh, non-urothelial tumors potentially uh, that have these same eight mutations that you can read about in the PI. Okay, that's it. We're done. <laughs>